Hello and welcome back, coffee and book lovers. We are continuing on in Coffee, a Connoisseur's Companion, Chapter 1, History, from page 18. Since the Second World War, the main feature of world coffee production and commerce has been the enormous rise in importance of the African countries as coffee suppliers. Their contribution has been mainly in the cheaper coffees in competition with Brazil. Brazil, however, with Colombia a close second, still dominate the coffee markets of the world. While Yemen, the first producer, slips into relative inactivity, some of the old coffee-producing countries are making inroads into the South American supremacy. Despite its success, the history of coffee production has been the checkered one of a delicate tropical crop threatened by the vagaries of weather, disease, and natural disaster. With the growing fierce competition of the last decades, it has also been one of recurring cycles of overproduction and underproduction with the accompanying price changes. Merchandising developed into a ruthless free-for-all with price cutting and dumping and burning of mountains of unsaleable coffee, as in Brazil, for many years. The devastating black frost, which crippled millions of trees in Brazil on the night of 17th July 1975, and the political unrest in many African countries contributed with Brazil's crop tragedy to a temporary world shortage and great price rises. In the 1950s, producing countries attempted to stabilize production levels and prices through short-term agreements between themselves. In 1962, the first long-term international coffee agreement took place at the United Nations in New York. Three other agreements followed to balance the supply and demand for coffee, to ensure a fair price structure and to encourage cooperation between exporting and importing countries. The agreements have been administered in London by the International Coffee Organization. They have had a, they have had a stabilizing effect through setting a price range for coffee through a system of adjustable export quotas. But the last agreement expired in 1989. With obvious conflicts of interest, growing dissension on quotas, selectivity and readjustment systems, and criticism that prices were kept down for the consuming countries, the producing countries failed to agree to renew the system. The market is now free and there are no quotas. The result has been disastrous for the producing countries, whose economies lie precariously on the fortunes of the coffee crop. Oversupply caused prices to tumble by half. Consuming countries, and particularly the United States, have benefited from the free market. Producers desperately need the cooperation of consumers in establishing an instrument to regulate the market and defend their prices, but the large roasting firms which control the American market want a market-oriented agreement. However, they have found that although an increase in prices slows down consumption, a decrease in prices does not have the opposite effect. The more well-known top-quality coffees have maintained their identity and appreciation and still find a market. It is the demand for medium-type coffees that has suffered. Because they are less profitable, many growers have abandoned them. Colombia and Peru have suffered the effects of the narcotics trade. A fall in the earnings of coffee growers have worsened the problem. 
many farmers have turned instead to growing cocoa for cocaine. Merchants are to some extent protected against price changes in the futures market by buying and selling in advance. The Coffee Terminal Market Association acts mostly as an international insurance market, interpreting world conditions and anticipating supply and demand trends. Speculation, however, also results in artificial price rises. Trading for the cheaper, robusta coffees alone is carried on at the London Commodity Exchange, at one commodity quay, St. Catherine Docks, while the futures market for Arabicas is the New York Coffee and Sugar Exchange. Quality, milds, and Brazils, especially those in the private sector, are sold straight to the buyers. Beginning History, Section 3, called Coffee Houses. Although their history has not been smooth, various styles of coffee houses have developed throughout the world for the specific purpose of drinking this privileged brew. We have the leisurely continental sidewalk cafes and the cafes concerts for the family outing. There are the German Kaffee Klatsch, coffee and gossip gardens where people bring their own cakes and sandwiches, and the American coffee bars where customers have only a few minutes to snatch a cup of coffee sitting on a high stool. A certain flavor and style are common to most. Inaugurated in the Levant, they captured the leisure and tranquility of the local way of life. Coffee houses encourage the convivial spirit. People go there to chat and gossip and be entertained and sometimes they go to read the newspaper and to play chess or backgammon. In most parts, especially around the Mediterranean, they are not pressed to order nor hurried to leave. Catering equally for the working and the leisured classes, they have tended to be democratic in character. As a French periodical of the 1850s entitled Les Cafés pointed out in its slogan, the salon stood for privilege, the café stands for equality. Coffee has been called the intellectual drink of democracy. In times of upheaval, coffee houses became revolutionary centers, encouraging the interchange of ideas and usually generating liberal and radical opinions. It has been said that the French Revolution was fomented in coffee house meetings and the Café Foy was the starting point of its mob spirit. However, the democratic record had not always been sustained. Women were undemocratically barred from all coffee houses in England, and in the early days of coffee in Germany, the drink was reserved by royal decree for the elect alone. In 1781, Frederick the Great forbade the roasting of coffee except in the courts and royal establishments. He made exceptions in the case of the nobility, the clergy, some government officials, and his own officers. The creme de la creme were obliged to purchase the coffee at high prices directly from the state, but the common people had all their applications for coffee roasting licenses refused. Those who managed to obtain some beans and roasted them illegally were found out by coffee smellers. Spies paid to roam the streets in search of revealing smells coming out of windows and heavily fined. While coffee drinking has been linked with agitations for greater freedom, 
Ironically, its production in the Dutch East Indies, the West Indies, Brazil, and most other parts was dependent on the work of slaves or forced labor, and was a result of colonial exploitation. The character of each coffee house has naturally reflected that of its frequenters. Kasser's Niebuhr writes about early Syrian coffee houses in Descriptions of Arabia, Amsterdam, 1774. Being the only theaters for the exercise of profane eloquence, poor scholars attend here to amuse the people. Select portions are read, e.g. the adventures of Rusan Sal, a Persian hero. Some aspire to the praise of invention and compose tales and fables. They walk up and down as they recite, or assuming oratorial consequence, harangue upon subjects chosen by themselves. In one coffee house at Damascus, an orator was regularly hired to tell his stories at a fixed hour. In other cases, he was more directly dependent upon the taste of his hearers, as at the conclusion of his discourse, whether it had consisted of literary topics or of loose, idle tales, he looked to the audience for a voluntary contribution. And I will be stopping here today at the top of page 23 of section 3, History. Thank you. I hope you enjoy this podcast.